You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's incredibly easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on COVID Plus Test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. Man, I, I'm excited for this episode, but I'm, I'm excited in a different way than I probably have been in, in before. In the fact that we get to have a, a legend back on the show, Joe Hernandez, to talk about implication of real world events. And and the reason why it's an excitement in a different in a different ways because unfortunately why we are having Joe back on the show is to talk about a real world event. What's happening right now? We queued this up with everybody yesterday on social media with um, talking about uh, the Miami condo building collapse or partial collapse and so we're going to be talking about that from the urban search and rescue perspective. As if you've been listening the last couple of weeks, we've uh, we've interviewed two fire chiefs. We've had Joe on the show before. We're really interested in that class uh, cross sector collaboration, especially with our partners on the, on the tactical level. And so, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Good to see you again, John. And uh, thank you for having me on. Pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And so, hey, I I said this two weeks ago, and so I I need you to make sure that you hear it. I. I was blown away by the flawlessness, by the tempo, by the by the professionalism that you provided at Disaster Medical Solutions at the MSOC conference. What I call what I, I've been I've been I've been naming it for you guys the 2021 Medical USAR Training and Certification because I, that's really what it was in, in my perspective. And um, you know the 20 instructors there. Everybody was, you know, pro, like absolutely to the, to the max. The students watching their progression throughout that week and all that credit, all, all the instructors actually, namely uh, Walt, who was on the show, who appropriately did this. And I, I'm going to say it as well. Everybody comes back to, to knowing that Joe Hernandez, 
you, sir, are the reason why that training is so great. And so just hats off to you. And, and I'm, again, really impressed with what that training that you provided. And so I'm grateful to have you back on the show and to, to keep learning with you and from you. Thank you. And, and you're only as good as those that, sur- that you surround yourself with. And I am extremely grateful and honored to have those particular instructors that carry that mantle to teaching that next generation. And it looks like, John, you kind of build a new niche uh, for yourself uh, in helping those new generations understand a particular part of the, the whole arena that just is a, is a missing link and really an important link as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I keep on finding myself in these areas where I'm like, hey, this is this seems really important, but we're not talking about it, like these gaps. And I, yeah. I don't necessarily look for the gap. I just happen to find myself realizing, hey, there, there's this, this is disconnect. And one of the disconnects is, like, the, the principles of emergency management, command and control, attacking a situation, span of control, all these different things, and, and how to do that. We do that every single day. And so, like, the communication piece that was happening with all the USAR uh, students, um, you know, understanding that they were actually attacking multiple roles at the same time because they weren't there to do command and control. They were do, there to learn medical, for sure. But uh, I kept on going back to them thinking, like, oh, what we do applies to what you're trying to do and, like, trying to teach them that, those skills throughout the way. And then opposite, or on the opposite end of the spectrum, I was, I was inadvertently just gaining and gaining and gaining all week at that conference. I was like, man, this applies so much to what I'm doing. And so I'm on a huge kick right now of like, hey, the, the tactical and strategic screwed like the separation. Like we need to coordinate so much better um, because we'll be more successful if we, if we gain those traits from both sides of the house. Absolutely. Train as you fight, fight as you train. Bingo. Hey, I actually said that on one of the posts this morning. So, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's talk about the, the, the meat of the topic, uh, Miami right now, literally right now operations are underway. Um, well, actually let me cue it up one more time. The students and the instructors that were there are from Miami. They operate in Miami. And so the skill sets that they were learning um, at the conference, they're actually could be applying right now. And so can you provide us the context of what happened to the building, what we know of right now, and then start walking through the temple, what's going on, and, and maybe kind of help us see around the corner a little bit? Uh, sure. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, students that uh, we've had the pleasure of, of having in there, and I don't even like calling them students because of position that's just in the class as a participant, mm-hmm. um, but their level of so absolutely, a lot of participants in previous classes, including a lot of instructors, both in the as paramedic firefighters within those agencies and medical directors uh, coming out of the hospitals now to assist with those decision makings, should there be, God forbid, a need for an amputation for somebody that may still be entrapped from underneath that rubble. Um, absolutely. Uh, part of the urban search and rescue component, uh, as well as just a local fire agency just happened to be lucky enough to have that type of an infrastructure within their own backyard. And so we can take it a little bit further up the coast that might not have had that infrastructure immediately available to them and now waiting for the Calvary to come. Mm. And so uh, it, it's not anybody's, uh, fault, but however, just is with infrastructure and how well those communities and those agencies build up their civil protection uh, for those citizens, you know, as high rises 
continue to go up and, and in numbers grow, uh, so should their protection both in law enforcement and in fire rescue protection, i.e. and here we got a building collapse. And you say, well, what does fire rescue have to do with that? Basically everything. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that, that, is the, that is the response, right? It's a fire response. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Um, and in that agency, being a, a, what we call a cross-trained dual-role fire EMS base, um, they were able to bring in their own structure of uh, a medical control and set up a casualty collection point, et cetera, and triage system within their own agency as uh, victims were being brought out, uh, walked out, and or rescued out by uh, elevated beams. Yeah, and uh, I think it's Florida Task Force 1 and 2 that are, are deployed there right now, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. It is Task Force 1 jurisdiction. It is a section of unincorporated Miami-Dade County that sits between the city of Miami and Miami Beach. Um, a little bit further north, about five miles north of uh, the craziness down at South Beach and uh, a little bit quieter community, uh, mm. pretty much the center of Miami Beach, about 15 miles from where I grew up as a kid and, uh, and where I worked uh, for my career. And uh, they had the luxury of having local units and then, of course, the ability to call in mutual aid i.e., from my understanding, over 80 initial units responded to that Jeez. event. If you take 80 units out of any type of city, then you would strip its citizens of any protection. And so any smart dispatch center and commander that's there will begin to do what we call mutual aid and uh, ask the brother from another mother, hey, you saw and Susar, will you come lend a hand? Mm. Uh, we need this game. So... so um what what information do we know now? Like, do we know any any possible leads of like why the building collapsed? We don't think it was a terrorist attack. We don't think it was a natural hazard. It was just the like, age and incompetence of the uh, of the building and the, and the like. What what are the factors? The, the building was built in eighty one. It's mm -hmm. an older building. It's uh, definitely on the coast and surrounded by the uh, intercoastal waterway and the ocean on uh, either side. They have had recent construction within the building. Mm. Uh, some of the units were for sale since it was an older unit built in 81, and they were building a new building in the surrounding environment. So did any of the uh, implications of, of hammering uh, the, the ground, et cetera, have anything to do with it? Basically, that's probably where their eyes are going to go. Mm. Uh, the dispatch uh, recordings from the initial dispatch did have one of the officers mention that one of the victims within the building said it sounded like a bomb going off. Uh, however, I'm sure 13 to 12 stories of concrete crumbling sounds like, like a, bomb a bomb going, going off. off. Yeah. Yeah. Hitting the ground. And so um, a friend of mine from the uh, U.S. Uh, Department of Homeland Security, Miami office, uh, of course, they're on scene as well. And, and, and they kind of feel the same way that it most likely looks like a, a possible structural uh, event, which you know, it leads us back to saying uh, it doesn't take uh, an ugliness of uh, somebody doing some act of violence, and it doesn't take a tornado or an earthquake. It just takes the act of nature and, and yeah. construction. And so uh, disasters happen when we least expect them. That one happened at 1.30 in the morning. And so uh, those that went to bed and were able to say their prayers, uh, um, we pray that uh, we're met very well uh, during that evening if it was uh, their time. Uh, there are still approximately 50 plus people unaccounted for. 
Um, you know, you might want to say they're all high value targets because to me, every single person within an entrapment is a high value target. Um, however, we know that there are several family members of the first lady, um, from one of our South American neighbors, uh, who are in that building and still missing from that. Uh Um, so you don't know who's living in a building and or what intentions are. And so at this time, they don't think any intentions. It was just a natural event, but happening at that time, you know, the responders and what they're doing, they're all rested, not expecting to get up uh, out of bed, shaken. And I believe that that first arriving officer did a fantastic job on not losing his marble, uh, Uh was pretty steady and, uh, and calling out the units. Uh, when, when you call a, Priority, uh, and he kept on going through the numbers, priority four, five, six, uh, this might be seven, you know, things that we haven't talked about, things that you as an emergency manager say, and okay, for a multi-incident, we've got certain priorities, but man, for one incident at one time that we can have, you know, maybe a hundred victims right here, right now in a square block, that's a lot. Yeah. The, the amount of resource that'd be required just to, e- even if they were able to get out of the building, the triage that would have to happen um, you know, the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, uh, we, we just talked about Pulse Nightclub last week. Uh, Incident Commander Chief, uh, Chief Davis was on here. Same ideas. Like, the triage component is so complex when, you're, when you have, you know, potentially 100 people plus. Where do you send them all? And uh, can the infrastructure, the, the healthcare infrastructure even, even um, deal with the, the inventory there um, sure. uh, of assets and people? Um, and so, okay, it's one thirty in the morning. Building collapses. I would agree that it thirteen floors of a of a concrete falling sounds like a bomb. That's kind of what we had to deal with in Hurricane Katrina too, right? Is the local residents of uh, the ninth ward thought it was a bomb going off when the levee blew and you know hundreds of thousands of gallons of water rushing out in a in an instant. So, like we hear this sure. often. Um, what would be the so actually, somebody asked on social media if the salt water in the air or like that the, the the humidity in the air would have played in a factor of um, of a building collapse. Is that something that you had to think about, or is that kind of outside the realm of? Um, you know, I, it, I'm sure that the structural engineers are going to go in there and look at all the rebar, mm. um, see what the conditions of that rebar. Rebar, as you know, when it rusts, it expands, kind of crumbles. It's kind of there to help the concrete support the concrete from may having big cracks and if it yeah. does crack, hold it, hold it together. And possibly I know that, you know, it's almost like a seawall. Anybody that lives on a coastal area and has a seawall, they could see the damage of constant salinity within the air, really rusting mm-hmm. out thing they have. And eventually the, what they call a dead man, which holds that seawall back, rusting out and having to be replaced with the, with new technology. Mm-hmm. And so absolutely, I'm sure that that will, will be heavily looked at. You know, as you said, a lot of people will make comments based on certain ideas, factors, and what they're seeing. And the one I keep hearing, and and even from my own, you know, uh, friends, family members that are asking, you know, why aren't they on the pile? Why do I keep seeing images, you know, on on Fox News or or CNN or whatever source they're watching of people not aggressively uh, delaying the pile and looking at it now? Why, what I wanted to say is if you stood there and you looked up, all those widow and widower makers that are hanging and suspended on rebar, they're going to come down. And so if you stand underneath one, i.e. a nurse with a lot of incredibly well-intentioned 
uh, rushing into the Oklahoma City bombing, wanting to be helped to save somebody and was killed by a widower maker uh, upon entering the building. Uh, we saw the aftershocks in the Haiti earthquake and how some of those didn't feel comfortable staying within the secured structures that the rescue techs built, i.e. Uh, shoring areas, and they were running in and out of the building. Mm. Uh, the same thing kind of falls into this area of, of wondering that same thing. And so uh, even getting into the building that was already, like you mentioned, a quarter of it fall, fell down, those victims that are still in the building in the half or three quarters that's left had to be rescued. And so a command decision had to be made, and I believe that it was, and they do it, it's called life over life versus limb, right? yeah. you know, life over risk kind of thing. Right? Absolutely. And so the command decision was made before we could even get the structural engineers here to begin to make decisions on, is it safe for us to go in that building or not? Guess what they were doing. They were going in the building. And so while most people run out of a building during dangers and disasters, we had first responders entering a building saying, okay, I know that there's a risk that it could come down while I'm in there. I'm willing to take that risk to be able to bring out somebody. And uh, that's what they do it for. And so hats off to them again and, and the continuing. And then, you know what, the support from uh, the emergency management and from their counterbeats to deal with the emotional support that's going to come out of that um, uh, rescue effort that we know that affects uh, certain individuals in certain for sure. ways, not only the victims. So I like that decision of going in there, begin rescuing people with their high rise kits. Uh, one of the commanders made a decision to call out a full TRT component because they knew there would need to be technical ropes, et cetera, as you saw, uh, being able to bring people out of areas that aren't a norm. It doesn't fit a stretcher. It doesn't fit a wheeled stretcher in there. Uh, an ambulance can't get on scene. Everybody says, why aren't there fire trucks closer to the building? Well, if the building's going to come down, you can't lose all the fire trucks on scene. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't have an army anymore. So there's a lot of lessons to learn and, and a lot of good information they can come and share within the different environments and saying everything is done in a uh, controlled environment. And it was sure was that they handled it on dispatch, uh, that four minutes of dispatch, and then setting up their medical staging. You could see how they knew there was going to be a need for medical staging, let alone first was the rescue and then was the treatment and uh, a, a jam up job on that initial response by those uh, cruising, setting everything up. Well, so, so at the conference, they talked about this too, and uh, I'm going to kick myself for getting this term, but the idea that your cells start to break down from being a crush syndrome. Gosh, thank you. Thank goodness. Sure. I didn't forget something. That, a I had no idea about crush syndrome. And so like you sure. see these images of what happens in Syria Right, the building comes down, and six six hours later, people are just throwing the rubble out, and they get this kid out, and you see the image of getting the kid out, and it's like, oh, good, they got the kid out. But now, after I've learned about crush syndrome, and I'm like, oh, how how and when they remove the the debris and the the medical staff that have to go in there to 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 make sure crush crush syndrome doesn't cause a life threatening issue. For our listeners, sure. there's going to be a lot of listeners on here who have no idea what crush syndrome is. Can you explain? So we talked about Widowmaker. Again, for Widowmaker, for the people, it's basically the concrete that is hanging off the rebar that they're just waiting for it to fall onto the, the, the rubble pile, right? 
But then there's the other component of you have to be meticulous. It takes a lot of time to actually remove the rubble. What is crust syndrome? So uh, a mechanical manifestation, uh, also known as rhabdomyelosis, uh, basically a a cell being crushed, uh, potassium and calcium switching sides. Um, The need to try and get those those two chemicals alone replaced back to where they originally needed to be. And then what we know as the muscle hemoglobin, known as myoglobin, uh, a very large cell within our body, um, need to be excreted. And because of the amount of length of time that you're without hydration within that rubble pile, i.e. if it happened at 1.30 in the morning, uh, crush manifestations can happen as short as three to four hours. And so could he have already had rhabdomyelosis settings, uh, of course, just on time manifestation, if he was unable to move at weight uh, on top of large muscle masses. And that's where they look at that coming from. Um, those uh, cells deteriorate. They immediately begin to, to they're, they're dead. They're dying off. Uh, there's a lot of uh, ramifications from those, what they call free radicals, now floating in the system and causing other damages and death in other tissues. But particularly with that muscle cell, that myoglobin, and a change in pH levels because lack of hydration, lack of movement tends to plug our kidney system, our loop of Henle. Mm-hmm. And so we find ourselves being saved from the rubble and living for one or two days, however, dying within those period of time at the hospital. Yeah. It started, uh, the science came out of uh, the UK during the London blitzkrieg during World War II when the Germans were bombing the buildings in London. The victims were being brought out of the rubble, taken to local emergency rooms, and a doctor by the name of Bywaters said, why do we have so many British citizens reaching the hospitals alive but dying within two days of being there? And so began the the study of crush syndrome, crush, uh, actual what they call mechanical crush, crush syndrome and crush manifestations, depending on the the type of wording you want to use. So crush mechanical would be the actual weight of something being on that person and causing that and, or the the person themselves, if they're unable to move, um, Mm -hmm. uh, in a kneeling position, uh, they've got heavy weight on top of their shoulders and they can't go anywhere from the floor and they're stuck there for several hours. Uh, the pressure that's on the back of their hamstrings, the back of their, their calves, uh, the back of their shoulders are large enough muscle mass create certain uh, damages within the body itself, even death if it's not treated aggressively. And so mm. on the medical side, they try to do what's known as they try to return that patient to his or her pre-entrapped status. So how were they before the uh, initial disaster happened? And we'd like to get them back to that state before it happens. And if we can reverse crush or anything like that, we're probably going to save a life. Yeah. So the way I understand it, and please, you're, you're the expert here. Let's say I sit on a, let's say something's on my leg. The idea is that if a little bit happens, it's not a big deal. But if you take the pressure off of that and all that blood rushes through your body, then it's all, all that toxin from the dead cells are going to go in the kidneys and that's what kills you. But the body actually does it a lot, right? Like if you sit in a chair for like an hour you start feeling tingly on the butt. Your body is yeah. going actually going through that process, and it kind of is a signal to your body of like get up and move around, right? 
but yeah. the problem is, is when, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you're at a conference, for example, no, um, like it, but that's, that's the idea, right? Like if you get up and you're fine, but it's, it's when the pressure's released and, and that, that whole flow of blood goes in there and, and, and kills you. It's like, it's like the worst to think about. You got somebody out of the rubble and then they're dead again. Uh, that's just, that's just awful to think about. So, um, it goes to show like, well, thank goodness for the, for the doctor in the UK during World War II figuring that out. But even like the USAR teams, I was really impressed. Again, we're talking about the, the training more than the event, but I was impressed that they understood that and understand how that worked. And that there was a lot of time and attention to making sure that you're pulling people out in the right way. Sure. This, this incident is a little different though, because you and I have been listening to reports. Uh, I've been listening to a radio, uh, a frequency app. You've been sending me a dispatcher reports and you've been providing Intel as well. Um, from a person with your amount of experience and knowledge um, and hearing those reports, what do you think the reality of the situation is right now? And what do you think the next operational period is going to look like or the next couple operational periods will look like? Um, of course, the initial uh, link on a search and rescue event is, is as quick as possible. Of course, stability of the building, but entering canines as uh, quick as possible into areas where humans can't go and i.e. the rubble that was sitting uh, on the street uh, that everybody was focused on, multi-layers and multi-layers of, of building floors. Really, they were all pancakes on top of each other, what it appeared like. Uh, humans basically unable to get that weight. You don't want to send a whole bunch of people on top of the pile. There's the potential of people being under the pile because you're just going to flood, create a, a smaller void space, and that's not smart. So canines, uh, search canines, are really important in that uh, being able to do an entire perimeter check uh, through the pile as deep as they can go. They are trained phenomenally. Uh, they are certified in what they do, and it is an incredible uh, scene to watch them go to work. And so mm. with both federal task forces in the area, Task Force 1 and Task Force 2, uh, they had an incredible resource to that canine component. And so that was one of the real good issues that they had. Unfortunately, um, they haven't had a lot of, uh, of live find uh, hits back from those canines. Uh, recently, a young boy was just removed from that rubble pile not too long ago, um, which was a great save. He was more in an, in, an entombed situation, so he wasn't suffering from any uh, crush injuries. He was basically in an area where he was able to get out, uh, move around, but he was not able to get out um, from that uh, entombment. That's incredible to, to see, it, it to see is. that kind of fall and to see anybody being saved is just wild. 100%. And so there, you don't just walk away. You stay in a rescue mode as long as possible. Some recovery modes have to be uh, introduced at a certain time. When you switch from rescue to recovery really goes by the time clock. And so you figure 24 hours, 48 hours, four days, how long can you go without food, water, clothing, and shelter? And so all of those factions fall in there. Uh, could there be the ability of fresh water from a broken pipe or a water bottle from a refrigerator that somebody happened to be getting a drink of water at 1.30 at night when this came down? The steel refrigerator kept the concrete floor from smashing their heads, but yet they're now about the size of the bottom of the freezer and kind of hanging out with whatever was spilled out. He, he or she might have access to water. That would be incredible, i.e., as those victims were at the Haiti 
when they were in the Caribbean market having some access to something. But those that don't, you know, you're looking at that time period again without any water. Uh, they will bring in, of course, at the same time, cadaver dogs that aren't, uh, that they're not trained for live finds. Uh, just to be able to give an ID location and or even the amount of possible uh, deceased victims that might be in that pile again. But I'm, a, I'm, I'm hoping that they remain in a rescue mode at least for the next day uh, as well until they do call that in and get more accountability from those that are still missing. Yeah, absolutely. The, the missing persons thing is always so hard for me because there could be a million different reasons that somebody doesn't even know that they are considered a missing person. I'm on vacation in Thailand, you know, three days later, I hear about like my, my building's been crushed. Like what, you know? And so like there, there could be a hundred different reasons. I hope that, uh, I seriously, seriously hope that the reason why they're missing is because they were not there. And, um, that's amazing that they found the boy. I hope they find more people alive. The reality of the situation is disasters are called disaster for a reason. And, um, we hope that, uh, not just the responders are safe and successful, but we hope that the people in that building, of course, are as well. I want to switch topics a little bit um, because we talked about this last week. You and I have actually talked about this before. It's uh, PTSD Awareness Month, as, as you brought up to me before we started recording. Let's talk about what needs to happen. There you go. Supporting PTSD Awareness 2021. Um, Joe's showing us uh, that shirt right now. In fact... Um, yeah, huge, huge fan of that. Let's talk about the incident is the, the, the response will end then 24, 48 hours, whatever, right? A couple days get into recovery for those who have responded and their families. What do you think uh, are logical next steps for them? What should they be doing? Uh, discussing it. Uh, definitely discussing it within themselves. I myself know that talking about incidents, uh, I just had uh, a brief text with uh, four friends of mine uh, a couple days ago over a complex PTSD issue that I deal with on a yearly basis as a gold star dad. So, you know, talking about it is the most important. Uh, most people do have a significant other. Uh, some of them say, you know, I don't like speaking to them. I don't want to bring them into that world. Well, you can share what you need to share, uh, that they're able to, uh, to the level that they're able to listen, but it is important for them to know how you're thinking, uh, so that they can understand the complexities that might come out of that. And then, uh, continue to ask questions and deal with that situation instead of just saying, well, why are you so angry lately? Why are you having such a problem, you know, sleeping right now? What's going on? And you just not even giving them a little bit of the piece of the puzzle. So start there. And, you know, if, if, if you, if you have to start with your colleagues, uh, that's always, uh, that's always available. And, uh, don't ever think that, uh, you're weak and just trying to find professional help. Um, sometimes it's just difficult trusting and or finding the correct professional help. Sometimes you feel that those that haven't gone through certain things can't or don't have the ability to understand or listen to what you're going through. And that, not, that isn't always necessarily true. Um, there are some very well-educated people. And you know how they learn the most is by listening to the constant stories of what's going on by those that have had the trust in them. And so even though they might not have personally been through that, just listening through the, the stages, they're good professionals that are out there. 
I appreciate you saying that. Um, I thought it was really brave and really cool that uh, Chief Davis said he had um, received um, professional help. A friend came up to him two years after Pulse Nightclub and said, yeah. hey, your turn. You always tell other people, now it's your turn. And yeah. um, the good thing about talking to people and keeping the dialogue open is they are able to see when you have behavioral changes. Uh, I, ha- I married my best friend. And I'm very lucky to do that, to have done that. And she remains this day as my best friend, and she always will. But she is able to tell faster my behavioral changes than I'm able to to, to, to recognize it. And, um, you know, it's there's all these different kinds of stress. And I was expo- explaining this before, and I think I, even you and I talked about it. Our first responder stress is unique in the fact that they're up there close and personal. It is also extremely stressful when you're thinking, when you're, de- when you're calling up for USAR and you have to determine which neighborhood the USAR team is going to go to in a large-scale incident, knowing that everybody else in that other neighborhood is waiting for it to be rescued and they're not going to be and they're probably going to be, they're going to be hurt, right? Um and I've had to deal with that, that, that decision-making process of we only have so much resource, which, by the way, I found out that we actually have a lot more USAR resources than what get called out, which really pissed me off, to be honest. But, um, yeah, good call for uh, using state and local teams for sure. But uh, it, it is stressful. Whether you're you're going 18 hours a day as an emergency manager and your job is literally how do I help people, how do I determine, you know, evacuations or even if you're a logistics guy and I don't really consider logistics people emergency managers which is going to get like a really lot of pushback but you know they're the guys setting up the shelter they know people don't have a place to live unless they they set it up and so there's a ton of stress for that so I guess they are emergency managers I'll back that up real quick but um, you know in any any time you're doing with a life-saving or life-sustaining operation whatever your role is it doesn't matter you're not dealing with normal and, you know, I am actually, in full disclosure, I am one of those guys that, like, it's really hard for me to talk to my wife about that because she didn't sign up for the, she didn't sign up for the weird. She didn't sign up for the really hard events. But it is very nice to be able to talk to a colleague where I don't have to explain what happened. They already know what happened. They were there. And um, between my wife saying, hey, there's a behavioral change here, what's going on and colleagues that I talked to, that's really helped me out a lot. Um, and I think you're, you're saying the similar things, you know? Yeah. I can think of one word that would be shared differently. Just as you said, I, I've been blessed to, to be, be married to my best friend in 42 years. So it's awesome. And that's awesome. the words, how do, you, how do you, you can share the, the changes, and the disruption of, of odors and smells during a disaster with your colleague, but it sure as heck is something that would be extremely difficult to share with your significant other, just because they didn't sign up for it, as you said. They they, they maybe can't handle that. It's you know, why did you let me know that particular little piece, you know, that maybe could have been left off of that puzzle. Sorry, you, I cut you. I actually was agreeing with you right when you said the word. What was the word? Smell. Smell. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the changes, uh, eviscerations, uh, open refrigerator versus a deceased body, uh, mm-hmm. spoiled food, the, the changes, uh, broken sewer pipes, 
uh, sludge, everything you can think of. And then the guy that has everything under his kitchen sink, Malathion, you know, all the, the really bad bug killers out there that we don't, we're not allowed to use anymore. Uh, yeah. It's a mixture of everything you can think of. Uh, sometimes stays with you for a long time. Even changes sometimes the way that you eat afterwards. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, just real quick while we're on this, the impact that they're seeing as they're going up those floors and bringing people down. And for that period of time, listening to their cries, screams, uh, moans, uh, uh, begs of please help my significant, please have you found, you know, all of those things going through their heads. So the responder isn't only going through the person that they're dealing with, but all the emotions that that person has, the person across the hall who they've lived with, uh, uh, across the hall for 20 years now is suddenly all of a sudden gone because when they opened their front door, there was no across the street, across the hall neighbor anymore. And so a lot of uh, significant mm-hmm. impacts just in them dealing with emotional, even though there's not a physical injury, sure having to deal with emotional injuries presently. I thought it was, this is kind of outside of, not it's, it's related to our topic. So uh, I thought it was interesting after Kobe Bryant uh, died in the helicopter crash that uh, Shaq, there was an interview asking him how he was dealing with it. And he said that he immediately went through this, uh, this process of like, I wish I had like, re- like regret. Like I wish I had talked to my sister more. I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. I've actually seen responders do that quite a bit, even though they weren't the ones impacted. They were close enough emotionally to the event. They're like, Oh man, I wish, I wish, I wish. And it's like, it's, you know, it's, that's that's a really good cue that something's happening. If you're going through that, it's like, hey, somebody to talk to. They're they're called a professional for a reason. If you're a professional, that this is why I keep trying to change the topic of mental health. I don't I like to call it mental first aid because we understand first aid. First aid is there to patch up something that was damaged, that's normal, that was damaged, you fix it, right? Your brain is normal. You went through something crazy. You got to put on, you know, the first aid, which is talking to a professional sometimes, and you're able to operate normally, you know, and yeah. I think, I think that's uh, a, a big call out. It's agree, strongly agree. Cool. Um, yeah. And I'm glad I think like we, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit, right. Uh, on multiple shows, um, this idea of mental health. And I'm glad that we both keep calling it out because it's, you're a, a legend in your field, I am trying to build my goat status right now, my greatest all time status. But um, the uh, like that—that's the reality. Like, there's been some discussion about what disaster tough means lately. Um, people keep telling me what they think it means, and it's fascinating for me to hear. But being tough for me is not like oh, making like oh, like tough luck. I'm thinking when I think of tough, I think of making the hard call, making the right call, being strong enough to make the right call and doing everything you can, whatever phase of a disaster you're in, that can mean for infrastructure and mitigation, or it can mean making the tough call to say, hey, I was just on a rubble pile doing amputations on people and we didn't have enough medicine for them to not feel it. You know, whatever it is, you know, that's, that's the tough, call. the tough call is talk about it. Anyways, we're going to, yeah. we're going to beat this topic, you know, to the point. Agreed. But. And uh, absolutely. And as I was, as you were talking about that, 
that acronym, that last phrase, I was thinking about the difference between, uh, as people say, PTSD and CPTSD or complex PTSD, um, which are, are, are is a well-known uh, arena as, as in itself also. Uh, adding on to the to the uh, to the arena, where did that responder come from? Why did he pick this profession? Did he already have a bag and a closet full of uh, mm. skeletons that, that were in part of his life uh, or her life growing up as a child? And that's why they picked this particular uh, being a hero, trying to continue to be a hero, uh, as they say. And and as you are doing it, dealing with emergency managers, and did I make the right decision? Mm. And last time, I don't, I don't know if I made the right decision. So just adding to their PTSD constantly by not talking, by not seeking professional help. Yeah. So, one, thing, one thing that's very hard for emergency manager, because emergency managers, especially in the future, in the next 10 years, I really do feel like they'll become much, much, much more influential as social media compounds the knowledge that disasters happen all the time as we learn about the, the aftermath of the pandemic, that public health really was like the worst apparatus to use for response. It should have been emergency management because that's what they actually, you know, plan for and, and collaborate with multiple stakeholders. As the, the public learns like what emergency management is, I do think the, 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 the authorities and responsibility is going to expand and will become more comprehensive. It will eventually, I really do believe that the first responders, police, fire, EMS, will be under the operate truly under operations. Planning will be something like more expanded, and so like, just like the more you can collaborate between all the different groups, th that that process will happen. And the reason why I bring that up is because if that role is expanding and being more influential, then the topics that we're addressing right now, they will have to understand it more intimately. Uh, and that includes search and rescue, search and rescue, man. I, I'm so grateful I went to that training because quite frankly, it's, I'm like, like I said, I always say this, I'm a pretty arrogant guy. I feel like I know my field really well. And I don't like to be considered the guy that sits in an armchair and just like makes decisions while other people are doing the work. I want to do the work too. Um, but at the same time, like, man, talk about real heroes, search and rescue. I will say one hilarious and big problem between you, Walt, uh, Brian Davis, uh, who else? A couple other people, Cody, he was a student or a participant. Uh, all you guys are like trying to get me to become a volunteer fighter fighter or something. I don't know. Like I've been like more and more ingrained the last six weeks. I'm like, uh Oh, like I'm going to get, I'm, I'm moving to St. Louis here soon. And I, there's like, a, I already told my wife, I'm like, what do you think about me doing volunteer firefighting? She's like, you run a business, you have multiple podcasts, you, you know, you have two little kids. I'm like, yeah, I know. So I don't know. Uh, there's, there's some messed up psychology there too. Um, okay. I, I think, I think we addressed that topic really well. I think we addressed the topic of, 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 of public health or uh, of mental health. Um, one more last thing, if I can, John, just yeah. on, on, on that, the simple shift change that should have gone on this morning at seven or seven 30, how are you going to send these guys home? The, the new guys are biting at the bit to get in there, but how do you tell somebody, Hey, you got to go home. Yeah. When they're in the, and, and that's a difficult pill to swallow as well. Um, inadequacy, the whole bit that goes on. 
There was a responder or an instructor that talked about that. I can't remember which one it was. There was gray beard, which I called, I don't know, wasn't it gray beard? Thin dude, older dude, um, uh, glasses. There was him, and then there was, uh, uh, or like, he, I don't know, he was like Cuban or bald guy, really thin, bald guy. Oh my gosh, I feel so bad for not remembering any of their names. But there was not not Miguel. It might have been Miguel. Might have been Miguel, or it might have been the Mister Graybeard himself. I don't know. Um, yeah. But uh, one of the two shared a story about being on a rubble pile for eight hours and not finding anyone, being forced out of there, and ten minutes later they pulled somebody out. And um, he he did talk about that. I thought that was really good that he explained that to the the participants there. Like, hey. Like you have a job to fulfill and that eight hours of work determined that they could shift, right? Like the more you clear, the more likely you, you can find somebody. And so like, it does matter. Sure. Um, yeah. So I- interesting thoughts. Uh, you know, what do you do? How do you, how do you get those people out there who are so invested, uh, but also are exhausted, right? I mean, adrenaline can only last for so long. Hey, it comes adrenaline fatigue. Yeah, right? Like your and your body will start craving it more and more, right? Here's a question I have for you. Do they really go in for 15-minute periods at a time or was that part of the training? Um, that's part of the training to understand that uh, because you're trying to rotate them and all get part of that training. Mm. Um, so they're going to stay in there for that longer period. However, they're used to a time frame of around that 30 minute mark just because of being a firefighter and having oh, and or gotcha. an SCBA tank on them and being tagged out, knowing how long they could be in a, in a, on a single bottle before coming out for rehab. Got um, it. They're doing a realistic and interesting that you say that, uh, that, uh, we did some training up in Wisconsin at the react center. And um, there was still ice, frozen ground, water on the ground. And so 15-minute rotation became a real incident because you needed insulation between you and the ground. Interesting. So I know Miami, I know Miami Beach definitely isn't a Wisconsin in January. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine the, the heat. Uh, presently, you know, we were at 86-degree temperatures with about 70 to 80-degree percent humidity. So our temperatures in the morning were already feeling mm. close to the 100-degree mark. Yeah, so when um, I was helping, uh, just for the listener's sake, I was helping with some of the filming um, uh, at the training because, hey, I'm not a medical guy. I want to participate somehow. But so I was I was in the rubble piles for like, you know, four or five times longer than the, than the crews were because they were learning and they were switching in and out. I'd get out of there after an hour and I'd be like sweat, just like pure sweat. And it wasn't even that hot. I was like, this is, this is a burden. So like... Uh, yeah, I mean, and I, and I was surprised to learn the 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 lack of gear that they have when they go in there. Uh, we're talking long shirts. I will say that Five Eleven is one of the sponsors of one of our other podcasts, and uh, they're not a they're not a sponsor of this one. But they were making a killing at that conference. They had no idea. Everybody I look around. Everyone's wearing Five Eleven like left and right, head to toe. I was like, man, this is this is Five Eleven's uh, the wheelhouse right here. So good for them, but. Um, yeah, I, I was, we tried to get them to come out and look at what all the responders are uh, wearing and do some R and D in that rubble pile, mm. uh, with the urban 
Mexican rescue environment opened some of their eyes in that too as well. Interesting. Yeah. I started, man, knee pads changed my whole life. I, I went out there. I was like, I'm not really going to be crawling around too much. I don't need the knee pad. I got out there. I was like, oh my gosh. So I went to, I went to like Lowe's or Home Depot that night, got some $12 knee pads, life changing. I'm like gardening in our backyard. I like bend down to the pool. Now my wife's like, really, you're putting the knee pads on to clear out the pool. I'm like, oh man, you have no idea. This has changed my whole life. Pretty soon I'm sure. going to start wearing a tank on my back and, uh, you know, try to find fires. I don't know. I, I got to like pump the brakes there real fast, but, um, Hey, Joe, thanks again for, for coming on the show. We're talking about what's happening right now in Miami and, and walking through the next steps. These things really do apply all across the field, and, and people need to hear about it. People need to learn from each other. I'm glad as an emergency manager I get to learn from you, uh, Ur- Ur- Urban Search and Rescue, and I really hope Urban Search and Rescue starts learning from the emergency management side. We don't just Amen. deliver water. Oh, my Amen. gosh. You know, so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> everything that has to go on now with infrastructure. I mean, routes have to be changed, uh, streets, uh, sanitation, garbage, uh, lodging for all those victims. Yeah. Clothing. Uh, it, it's just, everything needs to get reworked. Electrical infrastructure has to change. There's a lot of work for an emergency manager and staying busy, uh, with that event for, for days to come after the recovery mode is, is cleared up. Yeah, absolutely. D- days and, and, and several weeks. I mean, the insurance claims, the, I mean, just everything. I would, I would assume that right now Red Cross has an MOU in place with a hotel chain that they're yeah. trying to put survivors in. Sure. Um, the Salvation Army is probably providing some kind of food assistance and um, they're trying, you know, DOT's involved in, in, in clearing that, sure. those areas. And then they're going to have construction crews. Hey, here's a question for you that, that I have to deal with on the emergency management side is at what point can you trust a construction crew to go in there and not accidentally find a deceased person? Yeah. And that, that is a really, really uh, touchy subject. And so they probably will keep someone there during the recovery process and they may bring in certain uh, structural engineers, because the USAR component does have a heavy equipment uh, operators in there, they may bring in their own equipment and do their own digging uh, and do what we call delayering of that pile until they do have an accountability just to keep uh, those that might not be familiar with that type of work uh, mm. in that pile. Yeah, and an emergency manager, in, in terms of the my side of the house, we would be the ones coordinating the resources, making sure that the the budget's yeah. there to be able to do that, you know, those MOUs that could get them put in yeah. place, the, the debris yeah. trucks that get hauled out, all yeah. that stuff starts to... And having to go and ask for more money because it's just, they just didn't give you enough to operate it. So you having to go back and fight with the city administrators. So that emergency management, I'm definitely not a podcaster, but back at you on the emergency management side, the difference of having to scramble and you yourself getting called at one thirty in the morning, start planning. You better have know what you're doing versus knowing that a hurricane's coming a week out. Literally right now there's, there's a system sure. out there, right? Sure. So, I mean, as an emergency manager, you're dealt with the same slap in the face. Holy smokes, wake up at one thirty, honey. I got to go. I got a lot of work. And if you don't already know your business, you're going to hit a brick wall fast. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole heck of a different hat to wear as an emergency manager versus saying, all right, I got five days to figure this one out. I'm going to start moving my chess players into place and 
you, you've got some, some leverage there, but being woken up just like everyone else did at one thirty, yeah. uh, your hat has to get put on and you probably better reach for five different hats because you know how it goes. You're going to wear five different hats yeah. during that. So it's a challenge again for, for you guys in, do I have some time to build this out or did I just get slammed in the face also? Yeah, for sure. And like I said, there is a disturbance right now in the Atlantic. Something else pops up. If, you know, that's the hard, that's the hard call also for an emergency manager. A lot of USAR guys don't know this, but like if there's a hurricane coming barreling at uh, an incident, we might be able to, we might not be able to, we might be, be saying to them, you are evacuating too. Your mission yeah. is over. And it's very hard yeah. for people to say, I'm right in the middle yeah. of response. I can hear people screaming. Nope. One of the best exercises, man, I keep going back to your training. Disaster Medical Solutions, obviously a big fan, um, was uh, we were in a pancaked um, garage. And um, halfway through it, the inject came in of the building is uh, that we're going to have an ever after average. We think there's going to be another after after. Jeez, another. Jeez, I'm going to have to edit that out. Another after shock happening in 10 minutes. You have 10 minutes. And they were scrambling. We're at nine minutes, nine minutes, 30 seconds. And um, they were like, you have to get out now. There is no other option. And there was, there was participants who didn't want to do it. Like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. They start giving excuses. No, get out, get out, get out. And those who didn't, I think they caught it, said, well, you you died, you know? Yeah. And so, like, yeah. there there's some of that, too. So um, the bullheadedness is a good thing, and it also is not a good thing in, in for our field, you know, always a catch-22. But it is sure. always a good thing having you on the show. Again, thanks for coming on, Joe, and talking to me, for talking about PTSD and CPTSD, on those next steps. If you've been listening to the show, if you've been, if this stuff has been resonating with you, you need to do a couple of different things. One, uh, if it's starting to click that you need to get some help, get some help. If you don't know of a, you don't know of an outlet for that, you can reach us at info at dobermanemg.com. We'll point you to a right resource, or you can reach out to Joe at info at disastermedicalsolutions.com. They can help you too. We'll actually put that in the show notes so you don't have to remember it. You can just click on it and it'll send you right there. Seriously, like don't allow catastrophic events to be catastrophic in your life. You're a responder, you're an emergency manager, humanitarian. Like that's your job, right? Don't let your job affect your personal life. We're grateful you are in the field. If you're the praying type, be like Joe and I. Pray for the success of the responders. Pray that the aftermath does not impact them or their families so that they can keep helping people. And still stay safe. We'll see you next week.